Trigeminal autonomic cephalalgias, or TACs, and their classifications are enough to give any physician a headache. How can we better appreciate this condition and enhance our clinical practice? You're listening to ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to a special segment, Focus on Neurology. I'm your host, Dr. Mary Lushars, and joining me today is neurologist Dr. Peter Goadsby, Director of the Headache Program at the University of California in San Francisco. We're discussing trigeminal autonomic cephalalgias. Welcome, Dr. Goadsby. Hi. Now, what types of headaches fall under the category of TACs or trigeminal autonomic cephalalgias? Yeah, the category of trigeminal autonomic cephalalgias or TACs, sometimes called TACs, was created by the second edition of the International Headache Society's classification. And it was created to subsume conditions that physicians may well have heard of, such as cluster headache, and includes paroxysmal hemicrania and another mouthful called short-lasting unilateral neuralgia-form headache attacks with conjunctival injection and tearing, which is more affectionately called by the acronym SUNCT, S-U-N-C-T. The reason that the classification was formed in that way was to recognise that there are a group of headaches, primary headache disorders, that is to say, where the headache is the problem and there's not something else causing it, in which there's prominent pain, so the trigeminal aspect, and prominent cranial autonomic activation, so eye watering, redness, uh, eyelid drooping, periorbital swelling, nasal congestion, uh, the nose running, facial flushing, and the, the combination of the two, to trigeminal and the autonomic features, bundle this group of uh, syndromes together very nicely. There are two good reasons for bundling the group together. One is it directs attention to particular investigations that need to be done when we see the patients. And the second is that these individual conditions have very distinct treatments in comparison to the more common headaches such as migraine and tension type headache. The sort of investigations that, that have arisen by bundling them together, if you like, is to particularly be careful of pituitary lesions pituitary tumours, uh, typically benign pituitary tumours, are well recognised to mimic these TACs. And so when one, when one sees a patient like this, you're well advised to carefully image the pituitary region and to get relevant pituitary function tests done. As a percentage of the patients that you see with TACs, what percentage of these patients have all the symptoms you've described? Now, to have a TAC, you basically have pain and you have one of the autonomic features. You only need to have one. So it's quite sufficient to have, for example, eye watering or just eye redness. Most patients, in fact, don't have the full house. So it's important to recognise that they only have to have a few. It's probably worth saying that these are, while they're relatively rare conditions in the headache world, because migraine, is, for example, is so common, the TACs themselves are relatively common in terms of neurology. So to put a marker on that, cluster headache is about as common in North American and Western European populations as is multiple sclerosis at about 1 in 1,000 people in the population. So in the headache world, while we think of it as rare, actually in the neurology world, it's not so rare. And what's the age distribution of these patients typically? Now the typical age distribution of patients with the TAC syndromes is typically in the 30s, 40s and 50s. Rarely one sees it in childhood, although I have seen under the age of 10 all of these syndromes appear in childhood. It's horrible when they do. And I've certainly seen them in later life. It's worth saying that the TACs, when you have patients who've had other forms of headache, 
they will tell you, particularly the cluster headache patients will say this, and I've seen now more than a 1,000 in my career, they will say that there is no worse pain that they have ever experienced than their cluster headache. And that's quite sobering. For men, it's quite sobering when women tell you that it's worse than childbirth. And for all of us, it's quite sobering when you think of all the other ways of getting pain. This is the worst pain known to humans. Do you typically see these patients after they've been to a series of doctors or tried a series of pharmacologic treatments? Yes, that's a good question. Unfortunately, yes, I do. And we've done a study on that. We looked at nearly 300 patients when we first seen them. We cost a headache, that is, particularly. And about two-thirds of them had had dental work of some description done, extractions, drilling, filing, all the things dentists do. About a third of them had had some form of ENT procedure, washouts and sinus surgery and so forth. About a quarter had seen an eye doctor who simply told them that they, their eyes were normal. So the vast majority have had not only all sorts of treatments that are not necessary, but they've had a number of procedures and seen a number of people and it was just not necessary. If you're just joining us, you're listening to a special segment, Focus on Neurology. I'm your host, Dr Mary Lushars, and today I'm speaking with Dr Peter Goadsby, who's a neurologist at the Headache Program at the University of California in San Francisco. Dr Goadsby, what is the pathology behind trigeminal nerve dysfunction in these patients, or how often do you know what's going on? As we mentioned, for the secondary TACs, trigeminal autonomic cephalalgias, the pituitary pathology is a good place to look. For the primary disorders, what is emerging is a theme of dysfunction in the region of the posterior hypothalamus. We've imaged this using functional imaging methods with positron emission tomography, and it's clearly true in cluster, paroxysmal hemicrania, and in some, there's an abnormal pattern of activation in the posterior hypothalamic region. It's quite consistent with the presentation of the disorder. Very often cluster headache, for example, has a clock-like regularity, and the patients will be awoken every morning at 4 a.m. for their hour or two of dreadful pain. It turns out that the suprachiasmatic nucleus, where the brain's internal clock is, is sitting in the same region as where these functional imaging abnormalities are going on. So there is some consistency emerging from the clinical studies, the research studies that we're doing that point to deep parts of the brain. As we already discussed, head and face pain can present diagnostic difficulties to the doctor. Can you give our physicians a few diagnostic pointers to help them in their clinical practice? Yeah, there's a couple of big picture pointers. If you're sitting in front of a patient with a head pain problem that's coming in episodes and you're wondering to yourself, do they have migraine or one of these TACs? That's usually the question. The migraine patients, 92 to 94% of them, would prefer to be still and not move about during an attack because it makes the pain worse. Whereas for the TACs, about 90% of them to 95% of them want to move about. They feel restless, agitated and unsettled. So there's a, it's a big contrast. If you're sitting in front of them and they have sensitivity to light or sensitivity to sound, migraine patients, 90% of them, will claim that the sensitivity to light and sound involves both of their eyes. It's a generalised sensitivity to light and sound. In comparison, the TAC patients will say, oh yes, I'm sensitive to light, but it's only in the same eye as the pain. The pain in TACs is typically on one side, so they'll say I've got right-sided pain and I'm only sensitive to light in the right eye and it's, qu- it's quite a remarkable thing when they say it. The third thing 
is that if there are these cranial autonomic symptoms, such as eye-watering or redness or nasal congestion, in migraine patients, in which it, it does sometimes occur, it tends to be bilateral. So they'll complain of bilateral nasal congestion, sometimes causes the misdiagnosis of sinus headache. In comparison, the TAC patients will have lateralized autonomic features. So their eye watering or their nasal congestion will just be on the same side of the pain. Those three rules are 80 to 90% rules and it gives you a good basis to at least start to make the differential diagnosis. When should the primary care doctor refer to someone like yourself? I think trigeminal autonomic cephalalgias are rare enough in the broad context of things and the pain is so dreadful that it's worthwhile having the diagnosis confirmed by a neurologist or a headache specialist at least once to get a plan of management because these are devastating conditions. These people really suffer and I think it's worthwhile having that happen once so the primary care doctor can be pretty confident A, of the diagnosis and B, where they're managing the patient in the medium to long term. Because it is worth saying that these are conditions that come and go typically, episodes of pain that is to say, but the problem tends to be there for many, many years. So it's important to get it right at the start. How successful is pharmacological therapy in this patient group? Most patients with a trigeminal autonomic cephalalgia cluster headache, paroxysmal hemicranial or sunk, will be able to be controlled by uh, medical therapy. When I say most, at least, in my experience, at least 8 out of 10 or perhaps a little bit more can be controlled in a, in a satisfactory way, either stopping their attacks coming or treating the attacks that come by uh, medical therapy. There's a small group who remain refractory and, as you know, we're working on ways of trying to deal with that. What are the drugs that you use in your practice most often for this condition? Well, an important thing about the, the TAC is the drug treatments are very distinct. So the treatments typically for cluster headache are for the attacks, uh, in oxygen inhaled at 100% for uh, 100%, 12 to 15 litres per minute, or sumatriptan by nasal spray or by injection, or zolmitriptan used by nasal spray. And there's placebo-controlled trials for all of those things for attacks. For prevention, typically the best therapy for cluster headache is a drug called verapamil, used at relatively high doses. For paroxysmal hemicrania, it diagnostically responds to indomethacin, which stops the attacks in their tracks. And for sunk, short-lasting unilateral neuralgia form headache attacks with conjunctival injection and tearing, it sounds like a, a word salad to say, they typically respond to lamotrigine, to pyramate, or to gabapentin. Now, we talked briefly about children with this condition, although it's rare. What medication would you give to kids? I use the same medications that I've just outlined, dependent on the diagnosis, in obviously scaled-down doses for their weight. Cluster headache and a paroxysmal hemicrania and something in children is just appalling. So imagine that you've got a 10-year-old child who two or three times a day is feeling the same pain as a woman having unanesthetized childbirth. It's unconscionable. And it's, it's rare, but it, it'll bring, it brings a tear to your eye just to think about it. I think it's important that children with these syndromes are recognised really quickly and adequate therapy is instituted. It's just dreadful if they, they have to suffer. Does it have any impact on their development cognitively? None that we know. Most of the cluster headache patients I've run into seem relatively normal folk to me, a range of people from the most high-functioning in society to those doing the jobs that need to be done, so, so to say. Now, I don't think that it seems to affect their development.
However, just thinking about a child having a cluster headache is enough to send a chill up my spine, so I, I wouldn't, wish to, wouldn't wish to take a risk and try and do any sort of study to work that out. Is the incidence of TACs in general changing? We don't think so. We think it's probably been better recognised. I think that if you looked at it superficially, you might think, well, there are more patients around. I think it's just been better recognised. If you go back and read the old literature, you can find descriptions of most of these things. It's just that the, uh, they weren't labelled well or they weren't looked at systematically. So, no, I think it's pretty stable. Well, thanks very much, Dr Goadsby, for being our guest today. We've been discussing TACs. I'm Dr Mary Lushars. You've been listening to a special segment, Focus on Neurology on ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. To listen to our on-demand library, visit us at reachmd.com. Register with promo code RADIO and receive six months free streaming for your home or office. Thanks for listening.